All right, welcome back everybody to another edition of the Morning Report podcast as part of the Neurology Exam Review podcast from the Yale School of Medicine. I'm Dr. Jeff Dewey. I'm an assistant professor of neurology and associate program director at Yale. And we're joined by our perennial resident favorites, Dr. Chris Trainer and Dr. Lindsay McAlpine, the current and incoming education chiefs respectively. Today, I'm gonna to be subbing in as guest faculty and I think Chris has a case for us. So I'll let Chris take it away. Awesome. So I have a 39-year-old gentleman who just immigrated from Pakistan and basically came in for progressive global weakness. Tell me a little bit more about how all this started and how it progressed. Yeah, so he, like I said, arrived to the U.S. about a week or so before he had presented to the emergency room. He reported that he was kind of in an overall good state of health. He really had no medical history, you know, that was of concern. He was in good state of health until about a year ago when he was renovating his home. And he sustained a fall. So he was up on a ladder doing some work. When he hit the ground, he remembers hearing a pop sound, but didn't think too much of it. He had, you know, neck pain. Uh, he did not lose consciousness during that fall and was otherwise okay. He was sore for a couple of days, but in general was doing well. And about two months after that fall, he started to notice that he was having some right-handed clumsiness where he was kind of unable to grip things in the morning when he was drinking his coffee. He couldn't really hold up the coffee cup any longer because he felt so weak. In particular, he felt like his index finger and thumb were weak and basically noticed that over the course of about an additional six weeks that this started to progress up his entire right extremity to where his whole right arm felt very weak. So uh, Dr. McAlpine, what, what are you thinking and what else do you want to know at this point? I want to know the, the pattern of the weakness and whether he had any pain or sensory changes. So he was evaluated in Pakistan by a neurologist who said that he had just kind of global right-sided weakness in the arm. So all the muscles were graded as four minus throughout. Uh, his reflexes were hyperreflexic at that time, and he had some minimal distal sensory changes, but it wasn't clear that that was acute because he was kind of a laborer by trade. So he had a lot of kind of thickened finger, you know, pathology, I guess. And so he had some, you know, mild sensory loss in the fingertips, but nothing more proximal. So it was primarily motor. Hmm. Okay. So I'm thinking, so he's hyper reflexic, global weakness, because initially when you said the index finger and the thumb, I was thinking of the median nerve and that would, you know, affect his ability to hold up his coffee cup. But then if it progressed to the entire arm, and he's having hyperreflexia, then I'm thinking of maybe some upper motor nerve involvement. So it could be anywhere along that line from the spinal cord downward. And so I'd want to know if on his exam, he had any fasciculations or jerky movements or anything like that. Yeah, I, I agree with your assessment. For the, based on what we're hearing, it sounds suspicious for upper motor neuron symptoms. Uh, and I agree, it's going to be important then to see if he has any predominantly upper, lower, or both motor right. neuron findings on exam. I think your question about any sensory changes was very astute. Uh, and I always like to break these down into positive versus negative. So Chris, you mentioned he had some possibly negative sensory findings on exam, meaning he had lost some sensation. Did he have any subjective positive sensory findings? No, he did not. So he was com just complaining of the weakness. He himself had noted no sensory changes. Okay, so no paresthesias, no pain. No. So painless weakness. Yeah, so this is, a, so far we have a picture of progressive painless weakness, possibly with some sensory changes and some hyperreflexia. 
All right, Chris, so what happened next? The neurologists in Pakistan uh, felt that it was a primarily focal weakness in the right. They did not notice any weakness in any of the other extremities. His reflexes were graded as normal in the other extremities, so it really did seem primarily on the right side. So they were concerned Hmm. about some of the same things that Lindsay thought about upper motor neuron signs given the hyperreflexia. So they ordered an MRI of the cervical spine, and it showed on his MRI cervical spine that he had severe neuroforaminal stenosis at multi-level at C4. 5, C6, C7, and C8 that presumably may have been related to the fall that I mentioned that he ha- that happened at the time, you know, that he was doing that work at home. And those were all on the right side, by the way. So all of those neuroforaminal stenosis were focally on the right, but nothing on the left. And there was no significant canal stenosis nor myelomalacia of the actual cord. It was just the multi-level uh, neuroforaminal stenosis. All right, Lindsay, how does that help you? That helps me because... At that point, when the nerve exits the spinal cord, you're in the lower motor neuron. And so that would not explain the hyperreflexia to me. Agreed. So now what? So in Pakistan, based on the MRI findings, he was referred to neurosurgery um, because it was felt that his symptoms were likely due to this MRI C-spine pathology. And so he did undergo a C5 to C8 anterior cervical discectomy and interbody cage fusion in June which was about three months before he had immigrated to the United States. Post-surgically, you know, he had a lot of pain related to the surgery, but recovered relatively well in terms of his functional status. His reportedly right upper extremity did improve slightly, but didn't go back to being full strength. So his last examination by the neurosurgeon in Pakistan before he came to the United States still noted four out of five weakness in all muscle groups in the right upper extremity. But during his recovery, he noticed that he started to develop left upper extremity weakness that was kind of strange, but the surgeon commented that they felt like it may have been just edema in the area of the surgery, and so they didn't put too much stock in it, but they did note in their exams also four out of five upper extremity weakness on the left side, uh, which is now the other side, uh, in addition to the right upper extremity findings that kind of started this whole surgical process. And I'm I'm guessing the answer, because you didn't mention it, but did he have any uh, EMG or nerve conduction study prior to his surgery? He never did, no. Did his reflexes become hyperreflexic in the left that we know of? So the documentation is a little sketchy because they're mostly written notes. There wasn't reflexes in most of the exams, so we don't actually know whether the reflexes at what point or if any, the reflexes may have changed in his course. But the right upper extremity was continued to document as hyperreflexic, but there was kind of inconsistent documentation at the other extremities. I think the exam is really going to be key here, but just to sort of wrap up the history, did he have any other complaints of weakness, uh, either bulbar or in the Uh, the legs, any respiratory weakness, uh, anything like that. So as I mentioned, he had the surgery in June and he recovered for about six weeks in Pakistan before making the decision that uh, he and his family were going to immigrate to the United States based on just you know, procedural-wise, they had to wait for a while and didn't really arrive here till the end of September. In the month of, uh, basically from late August to late September, while they were waiting to enter the U.S., he started to develop lower extremity weakness in addition to the upper extremity weakness he was already complaining of to the point where he was having a significant difficulty rising from a seated position and was tripping frequently because he wasn't able to lift his feet high enough to not trip over kind of his own feet. So he actually ended up starting to use a walker. And again, he's only 39 years old. So he started to use a walker. And 
then about three or four days before he presented to our emergency room. And what really caused them to come to the emergency room is that he started to have choking episodes where he was eating and then felt like the food got really thick and kind of stuck in the back of his throat to the point where he was kind of coughing a lot and choking sometimes and really had to drink quite a lot of fluid in order to kind of clear that food down his throat. But other than that, at the time that he was seen in the emergency room, he denied any uh, dysarthria. His wife, who was serving as the interpreter, felt that his speech sounded normal to her. Uh, they denied any drooling, double vision, visual symptoms, or any other bulbar symptoms. Really, at that point, the only symptoms he had was the global weakness that was worse in the upper extremities than the left, or the lower extremities, excuse me, that was slightly worse on the right side compared to the left. And then the new episodes of kind of choking on food that had been going on a couple of days prior to presenting. Any family history that was relevant to what was going on? Any? Yeah, so in terms of other history, he reported a normal birth and development history himself. He had three brothers and two sisters. He was the youngest, so they were all much older than he was, um, but they reportedly were all in good health. He had no neurologic family history, including in his parents, and he himself had six children, uh, ranging in age from two years old to 12 years old, and all of them were also in good health. Any cognitive complaints? No. Anything else in the history that uh, you think is pertinent before we move on, just in the interests of time? No, I think everything else, uh, I think everything else, you know, is kind of already mentioned at this point. Okay. So let's hear the pertinent positives and negatives of his exam. Yeah. So his vital signs are stable. Medical exam was stable and normal. Uh, no respiratory complaints or respiratory distress. Mental status was all intact. His cranial nerves were all intact other than there was noted to be some quivering of the tongue that was interpreted as possible fasciculations of the tongue, but no loss of tongue bulk or weakness was noted. And he had five out of five sternocleidomastoid and trapezius strength. He had on his motor exam, notable atrophy and decreased bulk in his intrinsic hand muscles, his biceps bilaterally, his uh, forearm anterior and posterior compartments, the quadriceps, and also the calves bilaterally. He had increased tone in the upper extremities bilaterally, uh, slightly worse on the right than the left. He was graded as a five out of five in both neck flexion and extension. His motor exam was kind of proximal, stronger, distal, weaker. It, the upper extremities, the right was four proximally and three distally. The left was four plus proximally and four minus distally. The lower extremities, the iliopsoas, was graded as anti-gravity only, and then the rest of his lower extremities was graded as a four out of five at that time. He had no sensory exam findings. He was able to do finger nose finger without any difficulty. His reflexes, he had bilateral pectoral reflexes that were noted to be hyper. He had four plus reflexes with clonus in all four extremities. He had upgoing toes bilaterally, uh, Hoffman sign bilaterally, as well as clonus, as I mentioned. And it, the resident was concerned about walking him, so he was not walked in the emergency room given his weakness and just his overall level of hyperreflexia and increased muscle tone. All right. Dr. McAlpine, what are you thinking? Unfortunately, I'm thinking about ALS. Yeah, me too. Tell me a little more about why you're thinking that. So asymmetric onset of painless weakness that progressively gets worse, no sensory involvement with upper motor neuron signs like the Hoffman, hyperreflexia, clonus, 
pectoral reflex, all of those things are abnormal. And then just within a span of, I think, it, what is it, typically around six months to a year, they acutely worsen. And now he's having dysphagia as well, uh, which is concerning, an atrophy. Yeah. So you said a lot of the magic words there, which was progressive painless weakness, mixed upper and lower motor neuron findings, no sensory changes, asymmetric and onset, but uh, subacutely progressive over the course of about a year. Uh, and now we have involvement of cervical, bulbar, and lumbosacral myotomes, which is fairly ominous, unfortunately. Thinking broadly, is there anything else you maybe could keep on the differential? Or let's say we had seen this guy a little earlier, or maybe earlier in the history got, what else should we make sure is not mimicking ALS here? I think if there's sensory involvement, we would have a different differential. If there was spasticity, I think hereditary spastic paraparesis would be on the differential. If he was younger, maybe some of the later onset spinal muscular atrophy would be on, on the list. And then if he had had any cognitive involvement um, and maybe a little younger, he could have something like, a, like the adrenal dystrophy. What am I thinking of? Adrenaluca dystrophy. Thank you. And maybe Kennedy disease. Yeah. So I think all of those things are important to think about, especially when the history is, has not had this much time to develop. Uh, but I agree with you. I think uh, the biggest concern right now is for something on the motor on disease spectrum and, and probably ALS. Uh, so what, what should we do from here to confirm this diagnosis? I think that... A nerve conduction study would be helpful. I think that the, the EMG and looking for fasciculations for other, other types of signs would be helpful. I agree with you. I think it would help solidify things. You know, ALS is in some ways a diagnosis of exclusion. You need to rule out all the possible mimics. And clinically, I think that's happened here, but it would be important to send, you know, toxic metabolic labs and uh, even perineoplastic or other inflammatory labs. He's already had uh, imaging of his neck, you know, cervical myelopathy could, in theory, mimic ALS. And he didn't have any myelopathic changes when this started. Uh, so let's assume all of his labs were negative. I agree. I think uh, an EMG would be helpful and we would probably see diffuse denervation uh, in a lot of the muscles that we sampled, including proximal and distal muscles. And that's really the giveaway here. Uh, he actually meets the Ellis Goriel criteria for clinically definite ALS. So he has, well, I guess we'd have to do a little more examination. I shouldn't say that, but he definitely, he's clinically probable. He has upper motor and lower motor neuron findings in two segments, uh, cervical and lumbosacral. Had we found hyperreflexia in, let's say, the jaw, then we could say he had it in three segments and he was clinically definite but he's at least clinically probable. And then an EMG can give you a clinically probable with laboratory support diagnosis for ALS. Chris, how did his course play out clinically? Was, was these the things that were done? Yeah, so he had a very extensive workup looking for possible other causes of his presentation, including a lot of the things you mentioned, as well as uh, autoimmune diseases. He did have repeat uh, neuraxis imaging, which showed his post-surgical changes, but no significant, you know, findings in the, the brain or the spine. He did have a LP, which was interesting. His LP was acellular, but he had a protein of 117, which was mm. uh, felt to be slightly atypical. He then did undergo an inpatient EMG and nerve conduction study 
which did show some of the same things that you had mentioned. The report notes that there was prolonged distillatency, decreased CMAP amplitude, and slowed conduction velocities in four out of four extremities. He had F waves in the right perineal and the right tibial nerves only, but the rest were not uh, noted. And the needle examination of the bilateral C5 to T1 innervated muscles, including the paraspinals, as well as the right L2 to S2 innervated muscles and the uh, cervical paraspinals as well, all showed active de-innervation and decreased recruitment. So the final report said that there was electrodiagnostic evidence of a profound uh, axonal, primarily motor pathology. Yeah, it must be profound if we're seeing demyelination. You know, that would be fairly atypical for motor neuron disease unless you had such severe axonal changes that some of your motor studies showed secondary demyelination. But I think the motor predominance and the diffuse active denervation in terms of spontaneous activity are really the key to understanding this uh, study, especially if they were present in the paraspinal muscles. It sounds like they were. All right. So Dr. McAlpine, what do you want to tell this patient and, and where should we go from here? I think that would, you know, that will be a difficult discussion because we've ruled out all of the reversible causes of his symptoms. And now we're coming to him with an irreversible, progressive, fatal disease. So I think I would want to gain his trust and develop a relationship first and go through all of the tests and studies that we've done and, and what they tell us and then, you know, present him with the evidence of what's going on. Yeah, I agree. These are very difficult conversations. And having done this for a little while now, my, my heart starts to sink uh, at about the six-month mark of this story when someone's telling it to you. And certainly it's becoming increasingly clear to us as we get the evidence back in this case that this is going to be ALS. I find it helpful to at least mention the possibility early. However, I think that's individual dependent and different people will have different styles. But yes, I agree with you. Uh, a strong relationship uh, and good rapport with the patient and the family is key in this case, and everyone should be present for this discussion. And really, I think you just have to share this news uh, in a supportive way. What can we offer him in terms of treatment? I think there are a few clinical studies uh, that are going on of new therapies that he could possibly be a candidate for. So I would, I would put that out there for him and, and offer to have him sign up for one of the studies, see if he's a candidate. But I would set the expectations on the lower, lower side. I think you have to. So, you know, treatment is sort of a, a misnomer here. It's, it's, there is no way to halt or reverse the disease. A lot of this is potentially slowing it a little bit, but in a way that he'll never notice. It, it would more be if you go without and with, and we look back retrospectively, this may slow the disease a little, but you're not gonna feel necessarily better. And so a lot of patients have mixed feelings about getting these treatments. The, the two, actually there are three now that we often discuss. So one that probably has the most evidence uh, is 